All right, welcome back to another episode of the Magnus and Marcus podcast. Joined, as always, by John Marcus. How you doing, John? I am fabulous. Sipping on a kombucha, walking around the streets of my neighborhood with a little bit of slush snow. It's about as much snow as you can get in Portland. And it's kind of like, oh, hey, it's 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 white, and then as soon as it hits your tongue, it's it's rain. So that's that, hey, that's good, man. It snows here in Texas once every I don't know ten years or so. So, um, you know, we're we're hanging out in seventy eighty degree weather, so it's lovely. Yeah, what lovely winter wonderland. So, uh, on that topic or on that note, it's the end of the year. And to sum up our lovely year of podcasting, you wanted to talk about a pretty interesting topic. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Oh, for sure. Actually, it actually segues into my New Year resolution. And my New Year's resolution is less bullshit. And that's 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 all it's about. 2016, for me, my desire is have it be the year of less bullshit. So this podcast is on bullshit. Perfect. Well, brilliant. So, um, so yeah, I think what we'll do is we'll just kind of go at every topic we can and go off what is off the top of our head and see where we go and just call call things out, call each other out, and <laughs> hopefully have some fun without uh without getting in too much trouble. So we're good yeah. at getting in trouble. So, uh, we'll we, you know what? Once you've been once you've been in the corner and been in timeout, it's not that bad. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's imagine, imagine the breakfast pub, right? It's not that bad. There you go. You realize it's not that bad. You're okay. Your life doesn't end. So. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay, first topic on bullshit. This is one Steve and I talked about before in a couple text messages ago. The idea of perfection. So I'm going to let you jump into it because it came to you while you were on a run, and then you emailed me, and we went back and forth. A good email exchange, but we're going to call bullshit on perfection. Man, all right, perfection. Well, I think it's like this this horrible mis- misnomer. Like, we have this idea, especially in athletics, where it's like we must strive for protect- perfection. Like, we have to have perfect posture and perfect recovery and perfect training. And to me, like, it sets up this false dichotomy because it's unattainable. Like, no one, no one can hit perfection. Right. And people think like, oh, if you strive for perfection, like you'll fall a little short, but you'll still be pretty good. But no, that what what happens is like perfection is a fragile state. Right. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Every everything needs to be just in line to hit this perfection. So like by continually striving for some mythical thing that doesn't work. We're striving for fragility. Like, we're striving for something that can't be attained, and thus we're setting ourselves up for failure that we can't actually learn from because we're in this mindset of, like, it's perfect or nothing. Or we're striving so hard to be perfect that it takes us out of this, like, if we're looking at running posture, for example, if we strive to be perfect in every single little minute detail we we have from our, you know, our chin angles to our, 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 how we hold our thumbs or whatever it is, like, then we're transferring it from some innate, intuitive, ingrained behavior to this, like, rigid, horrible mess of 
conscious behavior, which is way less efficient and way more fragile. It's like but my question is on this: What is perfect posture? Who is the model of perfect posture? I mean, so, is it is it this you know world record holder? Is it this Olympia? Like who? I, because there is no person alive that has zero asymmetry. None does not exist. Yeah, no, it's it's true, and that's it's uh, and that's the misnomer we have. And if you look at, and this is not to segue into another bullshit topic, but if you look at, if you look at how science is done or how we figure out or how medicine is done or how, you know, we figure out, I don't know, training all that, it's all based on norms, right? And we all drag people, we all drag people to the middle. Like it's all dragged to like, oh, this is like, this is the bell curve and we're going to, we're going to drive, drag everyone towards this like optimal zone. It's like, no, no, wait, wait. It it doesn't work that way, right? It's like right. if you if you're constantly striving for this whatever mythical perfection you have, this mythical zone of awesome that is there, or, or you know, perfect posture or whatever it is, like you're eliminating that the outliers, you're eliminating the outskirts. And if you look at throughout history in every single domain, it's the outliers. It's the things that are so far out there that are, are different that one of them ends, ends up working, right? One mm-hmm. of them becomes like the next game-changing thing because it's like that's how evolution works, right? It's all this normal stuff, and then for some instance, you get this weird, crazy mutation that happens, and it's like, oh, crap, this works. So it becomes everlasting, and it's beneficial, but if we, right. we if we push towards like you know this this middle ground, I mean, not to go on. Oh hell, I don't care. I'll go on a more tangent. But <laughs> I do it all the time. It's okay. Yeah. The people but, know. The people yeah, know. Yeah, the people know. This podcast will never make sense. But like, if you look at like the medicalization of like psychology, for instance, like if you look at like every single condition, like has a medical term for it, like. It has a classification. For instance, all right, OCD. Yes, there are extremes of it, but I would mm-hmm. I would venture to guess that almost every single successful person has some sort of obsessive compulsion towards some activity that they are insanely curious about. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, and I, I get it, there's actual people with OCD and stuff like that. But for a lot of people, those people get designated too as having a problem because they have obsessive compulsion towards something. But those are the same people who do crazy, awesome things and make breakthroughs in whatever field they are. So how can you say that's a problem? That is outliers. That is not perfect. It is not this norm. It is, yeah, off the deep end. But I'm, I'm going on rant, so I'll let you talk. No, I mean, you know, with this topic on bullshit, there's bound to be a couple choice for episode five. So by you and I. <laughs> but I, you know, I think the thinking that you're applying, Steve, is, is good. And I encourage everyone who's listening, like, you know, that's the whole premise of on bullshit is just critically think about it. If you just critically think about it, you can see, depending on what lens and what level you look through, you know, whether it's a valuable or a realistic or sustainable point of view, or whether, you know, it is just complete 
foolishness and there's no, you know, inherent application and someone is, you know, legit batshit crazy. You know, I always tell people because, you know, Steve, like I, we coach a variety of different levels of athletes. And people are like, oh, coach, what do I need to do to be good? I go, well, what lens do you want me to put on? Do you want me to put on the lens for you to be better, the lens for you to be competitive in this conference or this region, the lens for you to be competitive at a, you know, be better in relation to the national scale, the world class? Like, what lens do you want me to look through? Because that's a loaded question. Because I can look through it from a multitude of different lenses and tell you, hey, you're going to be a lot better. Or, hey, you know what? You're really far away from being better. You're pretty, you're pretty much stuck and should quit. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I think understanding that is really critical and imperative. And it's true. You have to be, uh, you know, a little bit crazy, a little bit foolish to be able to create and do something that's started. But then I think, you know, how vaccines were first discovered, right? Like a whole bunch of you were dying from, I think, a witch-like disease, the plague, e- Ebola, or, or something. And, you know, a doctor noticed there was this strain, like cows were getting it, but cows weren't dying from it because it was less potent and less lethal. So he's like, oh, let me see if I can inject a child with a cow's disease or something like that. And then, oh, hey, they lived. They created, it was the flu. That's what it was. They yeah. lived. Their body created these antibodies that made them resilient. And then they got influenza and they didn't die from it. But I had to inject them with cow flu first. It was like, <laughs> like that's batshit crazy. Like, what the hell? But now we have the flu shot because someone decided to inject a child with a cow flu, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's like, and that's, that, as Steve and I were talking before, like, that's science. Science is coming up with a solution, testing the solution, being pretty much certain that your solution is going to be wrong. Maybe it won't be. And if it's not wrong, then that's a pretty good solution for the time being. You could create a better one, but that's all training really is, right? It's like training is training theory. Like here's the theories, know all the training theories because there's no perfect training theory. Everything is a, you know, as our good friend like Vern Gambetta says, every athlete is an experiment of one. That works for that athlete. And yet we take the outlier and we say, wow, that person won the gold medal and set the world record, they're they're now the paradigm of perfection, so everyone needs to run like this person. Everyone needs to run like that person. And we go and but that's that that's completely asinine because they're the outlier, you know? Like I mean, it doesn't exist. So understand that and recognize that it's like just know all the theories but know they're exactly that. They're just theories and they're provisional. They might be provisional for fifty years, five hundred years, but it's provisional. So there you go. No, that's that's exactly right. I mean, that's the Mm -hmm. thing on on training theories. I mean, I, (laughs) I, well, since I just keep calling people out, but it's just like you get stuck on it. And I know, like, if you go to any coaching conference, it's like, oh, are you a Lydia guy? Are you Daniels guy? Are you a Hudson guy? Like. Are you kind of a guy? Like, what guy are you? And it's like, well, you know, I have I have preferences and among all of them, but like, I know how they all train. Like, mm-hmm. I know how all the training does, and that's like that's what you have to do. It's not about like 
finding like one guy and being like, oh, this guy's got the answer because no one does. You know, there was a there was this cool study. Gosh, what was it? I think it was actually from the book um, that I told you about, Black Box Thinking by oh yeah Ma- mm-hmm. Matthew said, where it it looked at um, economists, right? And they're very similar to coaches because economists grow up and they pick like they pick a guru of a of you know economics. You know, it's like, oh, you believe this style or that you believe like Keynesian or you believe, you know, whatever other economics guru there is. And it's like that is that is then your model of how it works. And it was it was amazing because they looked at they did a study. They looked at tracks like I think economics professors and saw how they changed their view throughout, you know, from undergrad throughout the year. And it was like less than 10 percent of them change their like views on on what their model and the point he was making was like so what we had was we have like these economics perfect like these economics gurus the guys who are in charge of everything right who give all the advice they made up their minds during undergrad what Mm -hmm. model like what model to study during undergrad when they don't have a bunch of information it's not like they had they know all the models (laughs) perfectly they right. say, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, this sounds good. And then they spend the rest of their careers, like, justifying and, like, coming up with reasons for why their model is awesome. Right? Yes. And yes. I think that's the same stuff we do in coaching. Like, we just right. ha- we just happen across, mostly based on, like, what worked for us in high school or college. Like, oh, my coach made me do Lydiard stuff. Lydiard must be awesome. And, like, we just happen across it, and then we just end up coaching like it. Without being like, oh, is this the best way to do it? Like, maybe right. I should, maybe I should evaluate these other models. We just get yeah. stuck, and then we're like, no, oh, this is this is the best way. Yeah, you're just a product of your environment. I mean, it's just, that's just pure confirmation bias. Yep. That's all it is. It's like, hey, all of this confirmation bias, my this way that I think works is the right way. I'm gonna filter everything else out, you know. And so it's like. I I welcome opportunities to like see that I'm wrong and see that I don't know what I'm doing. Like I really really welcome those opportunities. They're they're really valuable opportunities. That's where I learn the most. Where it's like, ooh, that did not work. That failed. Or here's this really respected coach who's saying, you know, this is this is you know hogwash. I mean, you know, one example real quick is I'm a big fan of using like say the quote-unquote agility ladders in the skills and drills as like a, a warm-up for athletes. It's just an easy way to get warmed up for us. We use it in the beginning, just some quick feet stuff. Like we're not trying to get agility. We're just trying to get warmed up, just kind of get the brain firing. Like, hey, it's great, you know. And, you know, a good friend of ours, Vern, in the, one of the last running times, he comes out and they have a Ask the Experts and they get a panel of experts, Vern's one of them, about what type of cross-training things or you know, skill acquisition things are good or bad. Thumbs up, thumbs down, or neutral. And Vern gives it a big thumbs down. Like, Julie Lars, huge thumbs down. He's like, hogwash, crack shit. He's <laughs> like, oh, huh, I've been using that with pretty good success here with the people I work with. But here's a, you know, a valuable friend who's like, ah, it's just stupid. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to rethink this real quick and, you know, really look closely at it, whether this is good or not good. And, you know, it's like, I don't have all the answers. And, but I know what's working, what's not working right now. I was explaining to someone earlier when I was a younger coach, man, 
my athletes did core, like we did core, we did planks, you know, we did, um, you know, uh, Swiss ball things. We did PV stabilization, disc things all the time. Like I was, I thought that was really important, you know, like six, seven, eight years ago. And then I realized like through a lot of reading and talking to other people and thinking critically, like, man, that all that stuff is horseshit. Like it just <laughs> does not work. Like we're wasting our time. And I still know a lot of people who like, need to do core now it's not bad doing if you're doing core like and i say like it's bad it's just i could i can think of more efficient use of time with the people i currently work with than doing that now if you have all the time in the world and you know that extra one percent you feel like it's going to help you psychologically then it's really really valuable because as long as you're not hurting yourself i always say as long as you're not hurting yourself it's fine training it's not great training not bad training it's just fine because you know if you're hurting yourself, that's bad training. But if you're not hurting yourself, it's fine. It's, yeah, it's okay. You know, it's not it's not maybe the the best thing. But the, what is the best thing, right? What is the perfection? So it's testing all those things out and seeing past your confirmation bias. And once that, you do that and you welcome the opportunity for failure, welcome the opportunity to be wrong, that's where you can learn a lot more and then become what we're all striving to be, which is the best damn coach you can be. <laughs> Exactly. No, I mean, I, you, you summed it out perfectly. I mean, I think, I think failure is the key. Like, it's fail, it's fail fast and learn from it. Like, that's the, mm-hmm. that's the key from coaching. Like, don't take a long time to fail. Like, fail fast, get it out of the way. Like, learn from it, and then fail again, and <laughs> learn from it again. And it's yeah. like ha- ha- having the willingness to like take your ego out of it and not attach it to like you know, what you're doing and all that stuff. You know, it's like, I always give the example and I I have a tendency to call people out maybe too much, but like I remember giving a presentation early on in my career and um, and talking about, what was I talking? I forget. I think I was talking about like zone-based training and like the use of various zones and, and I basically called it, said it, was, it sucked, like in the middle of the presentation. And and then I think this was at a Texas high school coaching thing. But anyway, um, and, like, one of the guys afterwards, like, came up to me and was, like, irate that I called out, like, his, his training method, essentially. And it was, like, this works for us, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. And I was, like, it's like, wait a minute, man. Like, I'm not criticizing you as a coach. Like, I'm, I'm criticizing this system. It's different. If this system wor- is working for you in that regard, great. Use it, whatever. But, like, as coaches, as people, like, we have a hard time, like, separating our ego from, like, our beliefs, right? And when we tie our ego to, like, our belief systems or our coaching systems, then we just don't change. Because any yeah. criti- any criticism becomes, like, an attack on us. And we're going to go into this, like, defend yourself until death. Like, even if you're completely wrong because it's tied to your ego. Well, if you, like, step back and you're like, oh, man, Vern Gambetta, like, says that this agility ladder stuff is stupid. Like, that doesn't mean I should give it up, but that means mm-hmm. I should I should think, you know what? I should, I should think about why I'm doing this. Like, I better have, mm-hmm. like, a decent idea or it mm-hmm. better show some, some use. And I think... What happens is people get too tied to like what they do because they see it as like their little baby, and it's not. Right. 
Well, it's inherently human. I think it goes beyond coaching because we're inherently tutorial, right? You know, very yeah. territorial. So, I mean, you see the same thing like in religion. I mean, you know, granted, this is a very bastardized view of it from a guy who studied religious studies 10 years ago in college. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, you have you have these main religious traditions, but yet there's all these sects within the religion religious tradition. So Christianity, you have, you know, you have all, you know, Protestantism, Baptism, Catholicism, you know, uh, Mormonism, like Seven Day Advent, or you know, Jehovah Witnesses, like all these, you know, people who create a belief system and value system around this idea of God, you know, the Son, you know, and all this, or, or even people go go the other side of the globe, go Eastern traditions, Buddhism, you know, you have Zen Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, you know, like. I mean, all these different, like, sects of Buddhism were like, oh, hey, you're, and basically what it was, right, was some founder of that sect of that religion was like, the way that it, the current model is is not pure enough or is not accurate enough. So we're going to then create this whole new model, still within the framework of this tradition, speaking the language of this tradition, but that's more specified and that's more accurate about what this is really trying to get after. And... You know, it doesn't matter. Like, go to any religion that you want, any mass world religion. There are, you know, multitudes of sects because it inherits certain territories, too. Like, you know, you have the Amish in a certain part of, you know, the United States, and that's Amish country. And the Amish aren't hanging out in, you know, uh, Orange County, you know, California. <laughs> that's not where Amish hang out because that's not their territory, right? They're yeah. in Pennsylvania, Ohio, like in the Appala- Appalachians, like, area. Like, that's that's the reality. And when you understand that, it's like, yeah, as I was telling Steve, it's like earlier about something else. I mean, I find a lot of comfort in that because I find a lot of comfort in the fact that here are these inherent truths that all these people across the world independently came up with. And it was the same basic concept or principle, whether it's training philosophies, whether it's, you know, religious uh, ideologies or spirituality, whether it's, hierarchies where it's this or where it's that like that's that's a comforting you know thought to me now to say that this one is the right one is 100% accurate because it's the right one for you because that's what you believe in but to be you know completely um, ignorant or willfully ignorant to the fact that there are other ways to go about something you know that is just foolish especially in our like ever connected um, you know economy and civilization. I mean, again, I'm always looking for the the next best thing that's going to have the biggest stimulus and biggest training impact on my athletes. You know, it, it beyond, you know, within the realm of non-performance enhancing illicit drugs, right? So it's like yeah. can can this drill, can this thing, can this you know, what's your sleep level? Oh, you're only sleeping six hours a week or a night. Like, okay, well, maybe what, try getting eight. Let's see what that is. <laughs> you know, like, hey, you're eating zero vegetables. Try eating some broccoli every other night. Let's see what that does. You know, and sometimes it's as simple as that. It's just simple lifestyle critiques, you know, but yet we, we want to think that the only thing that matters is what goes on in the track and the gym, on the court, on the field, like, as you know, Steve said earlier, and I've been saying, like we're humans. It's it just, it's it, you have to at a certain point as a coach, right? You know, we start off thinking about physiology, how to impact 
an organism with workloads and capacities, you know, regeneration, adaptation. And then it's like Steve and I both independently came up to like, oh, wait, we're, it's actually psychology. <laughs> it's not yeah. physiology. Like psychology is number one. Physiology is number two and a backseat number two. And a yeah. lot of the reading I think you and I have been doing like the last two, three years have been more how people think, you know, psycho, you know, analytic type stuff, like just going back and reading, uh, you know, classic tests on like the marshmallow test. I mean, yeah. that that's really inf- like the marshmallow test and the understanding of the marshmallow test has influenced my coaching far more than any kind of like Lydiard, Canova, uh, you know, anyone else, you know, Bush Nextider, like any other like coach that I've listened to, you know, Mike Robertson on strength and conditioning. Like, I mean, those guys have, you know, and listening to them in their uh, podcasts or books have been had an impact, but that marshmallow test has been like, whoa, okay, that's a good thing. You know, understanding that. And then like things that have spurred from the marshmallow test. So, you know, I think it's like, Whereas, oh, I've been reading a lot of like on Charlie Munger and, you know, Warren Buffett's, you know, partner. And one of the things about him is like, you know, he's very widely read and he's very widely read and he has about 100 working models that he's pulled from, from a whole different, uh, you know, from a cornucopia of fields, from psychology, from physics, chemistry, mathematics, economics, you name it. And there's all these working models about how to look at something and solve a problem. And so he can very quickly decipher how to, you know, the best solution for him, for his goals, for his business or life, solve a problem and give you the five second no, as he's, you know, famed for reporting. But because he has an understanding of all these models, it just makes it a lot more efficient. We only can make a decision based off the models we're aware of. So yep. we may, you may never heard of Lydiard and you're completely, you know, kind of a Peter Coe disciple where it's like, fast and hard, let's rock and roll, you know, quality, quality is everything type deal. But then all of a sudden someone comes in and says, hey, man, doing two-hour long runs is of high value. <laughs> and, you're like, and you're like, oh, no, you can't run fast. How can you run fast if you run slow? That makes no sense. <laughs> Throw it out the window. And it's like yep. whenever I hear someone completely discount another training theory, I don't care who you are. You can be the most famed training guru on the planet. And when you just completely just say, uh, training theory is hogwash, even though it's worked and there's been like people who have ran fast and, you know, been champions or world record holders and they say, no, they're wrong. It's like, no, you're wrong because at the reality, it's just a theory and it did work. There, there, there is yep. history and example of it. And so, you know, there's another inverse way to call bullshit on, you know, something where it's like saying, you know, transitioning from this idea of perfection to the ideal training theory. The true training theory is the, the theory that you are currently chewing on. <laughs> and my training theories have evolved. Like, I look at things I did a couple years back, and it's, like, quietly different than what I'm doing now. I remember talking to my wife, and I was training, like, her and Julie Webb many years ago, and, like, we were doing, like, flying 50 sprints, like, in the beginning of a, you know, of a workout. Like, all right, part of your workout, you're fresh now. Okay, we're going to work on central, and we're going to do Fast, hard sprints because you guys need to work on speed. Work on speed when you're fresh, and then we're gonna go do other mixed pace work. You know, now I've transitioned to like that session. That work, it's his own thing. It's his own body. Like if we're yeah. doing pure speed development, that's all we're doing that day because I now know like that's really, really tough yeah. on the you know central nervous system. And guess what? 
we're not lifting. We're not doing it. You're just running all out today. And see, that's it. <laughs> see, I'll see you. See in a couple of days when you get recovered, you know. But see. it it took all this experimentation and me just not being satisfied with like, no, there has to be a better way. I'm just not applying it right. And, it, and I'm sure, I'm sure if you keep listening to this podcast and we keep having it in five years, I'll tell you the exact inverse of what I'm telling you right now. Because well, that's just what I'm chewing on. It's just what I'm chewing on. You know the the brilliance of that is you didn't have, you didn't write a book. So now, now I'm, I'm going to be stuck in like five to ten years telling people to do the complete opposite in uh in the in the update of what I told them to do now. So I'm okay Start with that. Part though. two, we'll, we'll yeah. write you and I will just write part two of why the science of running was hogwash. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but that's the thing. If I write that, if we write that, I will feel good about it because that means I'm evolving as a coach and haven't stuck, right? right? Yeah. And that's yeah. it, but that's how it is. And you know, the other thing is like, is and this is why I think you're you're right on this. Is there's it's bullshit that there's any one great magical individual like individual training system that works. If someone tells you that, like they're they're bullshitting you. But mm-hmm. I, I think yeah. I think the other brilliant part of it is it's not only within like, you know, Lydiard or Daniels or Co or whoever your thing is, it's also how you see it's also the model you see of like training from the sense of if you looked at I finally figured this out. It took me a long time. But if you looked at sprint coaches, right? Mm-hmm. They they see training through a biomechanical slash nervous system model. Yeah. That is mm-hmm. that is what they do. If you look mm-hmm. at endurance coaches, it is a physiological model, right? Mm-hmm. We are explaining if you can get the great sprint and endurance coaches in the same room, you can be talking about the same training. They will see it through these two different lenses based on like what model they bring to it, and they will see different importances. It is hilarious to watch, and they'll say, this workout gives you this, and the endurance coach will be like, no, it benefits you because of this. Mm-hmm. But it's because, you know, there's these different models, and I think that's the other thing you have to realize is it's not only, like, coaching philosophy models, but it's, like, in order to understand the complex mess of a human body, we break it down into, you know, this cardiovascular physiological model, this biomechanical model, this neuromuscular model, this psycho psychological model or fatigue psychobiological model. Like it's it's the human body is this nice complex piece of thing, but we can't deal with it. So like we break it into the model that we want to use and then we see the world through that thing and that like dictates where we go with stuff. So right. I don't and know. And you I'm... know what? You know what blows the model up? A coach like Frank Gagliano completely blows models up. You talk to yeah. Gags, Gags doesn't know models from his ho- the hole in his ass. You know, he's like, what? I just know it works. And it works, so we do it. And, you know, it's, and Gags is without a doubt one of the most decorated middle distance coaches of the last 30, 40 years in yeah. America. I mean, the number of all-American, Olympians, you know, NCAA champions, national champions, the guys, for you know, worked with, staggering. And here's a guy, and having been around Gags a long, you know, a long time, I say a long time, six years, not that long, but I've, I'm like, what makes this guy so good? Why is he, why is he, because Gags knows people, and Gags shows you, like, he's a people person first, and a coach second and really being that is what being a coach is is being a people person if you know people you're going to be a good coach so it goes back to the the psychology of it 
And half, over half the battle is infusing people with the motivation, confidence, desire, belief, reinforcement that their big, crazy, wild dream, whatever it may be, you know, win a state title, set a school record, get a scholarship to some school, you know, go, you know, win an NCAA title or a national, whatever. You know, that's, that's over half of it. And if you can say, hey, I have a plan, I have a way I think we can get there, I'm going to be here to support you, I know you, this will work for you, it's the, it, it works because, right, the placebo effect. Yeah. You know, in clinical trials, one-third of the time, the placebo works. One-third yeah. of the time. A pill that does nothing does something. Like, yeah. like okay, seriously, seriously, like the weight of that, a third. A th- I mean, if I, if you, if I, those are damn good odds. I would bet the, my whole, like, you know, savings on if I had a third of a chance to win the lottery, I'd, I'd bet it all, you know, because it's pretty good odds. So here's something that everyone don't know is the zilch, and it works. Just as effective as the thing that is, you know, infused with all these chemical works. It's, when you wrap your head around that, you're just like, huh. <laughs> I mean, just, huh. You know, yep. so placebo yep. effect, boom. It's down. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah. I mean, I there was actually an article maybe a year ago about doctors in an actual medical journal saying, hey, wait a minute. This is really powerful. Should we be trying to exploit this? <laughs> like, Right, but it only, it only works if the doctor the doctor yeah. thinks it works, and the because yeah. they think it's the the real thing. They think, oh, this placebo effect is the real thing. The doctor is yeah. giving you confidence that's going to work. You have confidence that it is going to work because here's someone you trust, a doctor, and we know from psychology tests that a doctor is still one of the most trusted professions in yep. you know the world, and so you inherently walk into the situation trusting that person. Boom. There you go. So because all those psychological things are in place, the hormones and chemicals in your body are then released to create this healing. So if you and your coach say, I have this great plan, you're going to run no more than 50 miles a week, you're going to do one long run every other week of 10 miles in duration, and we're going to do, you know, three workouts one week, two workouts the next week, and we're going to oscillate like this, and it's going to be perfect, and it's going to get you there. You know, the fact of the matter is if you stick with it, you believe in it, you stay healthy, you enjoy it, yeah. you, you're probably going to get pretty close to your goal if not exceed it. Exactly. And it's like this kind of gets, you know, and maybe a segue into, you know, one of the main on bullshit things that Steve and I are talking about. Is on, the on bullshit of the importance of coaching. Like <laughs> we have to remember, like, we as coaches are important but not more important than we really are. And to understand that is different at all a variety of different levels. I mean, you know, really, like Steve and I have said this so many times, the athletes make the coach. Yeah. And, I mean, I've coached a lot of snails and hamburgers in my day, and I've, you know, been coaching some faster people in my day, or recently in, in these days. But it, it's I'm no better coach than I was when I was coaching the snails and the hamburgers. It, it's It's just that, you know, the coaching style is about coaching people that I've developed over the years. And I really, it's like what workouts I write, what mileage prescriptions and dosage of fast stuff I ask people to do doesn't really matter as long as they stay healthy and they enjoy it. Because when I've left the school or, you know, an athlete stopped working with me or, you know, moved away or worked in there, they've still been successful. (laughs) Like they still had good, they still, 
And I want them to be. I want them to continue to run fast because all the coaches are, all we are are teachers. I don't want you to have one chemistry teacher for your whole life. Like you have your ninth grade chemistry teacher and in 12th grade, I hope you have a different chemistry teacher. But yet, this, you know, this, this idea in coaching that, you know, oh, I'm the best, I'm the best chemistry teacher in the world. And you better stick with me because I'm going to teach you chemistry like nobody else is going to teach you chemistry. Well, it's, it's a, co- it's a dependence model. Yeah. Like coach, coaches have to create dependency and make themselves feel good and keep their. Athletes. But it's not coaching; it's controlling. It's, a, it's no. just being a hundred percent controlling and manipulative. <laughs> no, that's that. I mean, that's all it is. Like, and that's the thing. It's like, but you know, it's like coaches. You get your ego and you get your whatever wrapped up into it, and they'll try and create dependency where it's like, oh, I'm the best person in the world. Like, you won't run fast anywhere else. And it allows the coach to have control, full control of your athletes, and it's scary and it's crazy, and but fragile. it happens. Very fragile. It, it, yeah, it's, it's very, very, fragile. very, very, very fragile. But it it happens a lot. Um, yeah, it's it's completely nuts. But you know, yeah. I, well, I I think I think the other part of it is like, I mean, me and you have talked about this a lot. Is that like, you know, we don't make we make a couple percent difference. Like that's all it is. Right. It's a couple percent here and there between, you know, an average coach and a, a great coach, if that. Um, but it's also like, and I think the funny thing about it is like, if you look at, we judge each other based on like how good athletes you coach, but like, just like you said, you've coached some pretty slow people in your life. You've coached some pretty fast people in your life. It's like, you didn't magically figure out what you were doing when you started coaching like fast people. No. It's not like it's not like you had this epiphany. Oh, oh, wait! Now I know what I'm doing, right? Well, it was, and, it's, and I was coaching, and I'm coaching right now fast. You know, depend if you look through like a professional hours on fast people and slow people simultaneously. Like, yep. I I have you know I get just excited about the college freshman girl I have that's trying to break 220 in the 800 as I am about the professional woman I have who's trying to break two. You know, Randy? Yeah. Like, I mean, but there it's a world of difference. Oh, you're not a good coach because that person's trying to break 220. Like, no, what's wrong with you? That's going to be huge for that person. Like, that's awesome. It's about coaching the person. You and know, that, and, that, and that's, that's what it's about. It is. It is. And I think that's where you get that. I mean, I'm in the same boat, right? I coach college kids who walk on and they're not that fast and I coach some really fast people. But I think that's like the misnomer is in it is like, you know, oh, like, I don't know how to coach this athlete because I've never coached someone that fast. And it's like, well, have you ever coached someone who's run up to their potential or got as close as they can be? Oh, Mm -hmm. you have? Okay. Well, you do the same stuff with that other really good athlete. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's coaching. Like it's right. getting people to be up to the potential, like whether that potential is two minutes and 800 for a girl or two twenty. like it doesn't matter. You're still maximizing that potential. And here's, and here's the thing, Steve, I have to demonstrate how, how unimportant or non-vital, I should say, I shouldn't say unimportant, but non-vital sometimes, and most of the times coaches really are. You know, a lot of pros and elites that you coach don't even live in your city. You do not even see them on a day-to-day, week-to-week, maybe month-to-month basis. Like, when's the last time you've seen Tommy Schmidt? You know what I mean? You know, really. It's yeah, like, no. you, you don't see them. And, like, for me, oh, I would, I would, I mean, I'm always, oh, I never coach someone I can't see. I remember, like, Julia Webb, 
when Alan went to Virginia to work with Vig, you know, they live in Portland. And I was coaching, and I was like, oh, we're in Virginia. All right, have fun. Um, yeah, I'd find a coach there, you know, because I don't yeah. coach people I can't see. You know, that's just because the relationship component is important to me, but it's like, I, you know, I I don't do that right now. And my might change in two years. I'm like, oh, yeah, now I'll coach people, you know, via Internet or whatever. It doesn't matter to me. But right now, it's, that's not that's not the case or it's like an example for even you know coaching people that i do coach like daniel herrera you know this 339 guy out of ucla who's moved to portland i'm working with he had a big time trial this weekend you know and it was like originally going to be scheduled for a friday and then we realized friday fell on christmas i'm like do you do the time trial on friday no you don't it's christmas you do not (laughs) do a workout on christmas oh what are you batshit crazy no like that's about time with family like Nothing is more important than that. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. So, anyways, he's in Los Angeles, you know, for Christmas and with his family. And I'm like, all right, do your time trial. You know, and here's the instructions. Like, you're doing a 3K time trial. You're supposed to go no slower than 420 through the first mile. Like, I don't care if it's 418, 410. You, if you go 420, you're slower than 420. If you're 421.0, you have to stop. Yeah, so, you know, you have to stop, you have to get, you have to do it again. Like, because the whole point was teaching him to get out and, you know, yeah, show yeah. some, show some, you know, cojones in the beginning and take some risks because that's what he needs to do to, you know, be ready, at least in my opinion, to race effectively this 2016. So, you know, I'm not there and okay, hey, here's the rest of the workout, you know, like, six times 100 all out sprinting, you know, like, you know, looking for like 11, nine to like 12, six, you know, full recovery. And then it was, you know, something like uh, a handful of 300s at mile race pace with like a minute, you know, like or a 100 meter walk jog in no more than a minute. So, you know, I mean, a pretty complex workout here. You're hitting, you know, kind of like, you know, max velocity at VO2, you're hitting some all-out CNS type stuff, we're in a little fatigue, and then we're finally getting to the meat of the workout, which is, you know, goal mile race pace work at 44 to 43. Pretty short recovery, so lactate's built really, really, really high right now. Like, you're having to buffer lactate like crazy. So, I mean, it, it sounds like a simple workout. You're like, what? That's just a 3K, a couple hundreds, and a couple 300s. That's not that hard. Like, it is. It's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> what we're yeah. doing. Like, it's not an easy session. And the guy nailed it. The guy just like blew it out of our hand, like eight fifteen for the three K, you know, flew on the hundred. He's just like, Man, I got texted. I crushed that workout. I just crushed it. And I didn't see any of it. <laughs> it was like I wasn't there to administer any of it. He's like, Yeah, my girlfriend was tying my splits on her iPhone. <laughs> it was like there are ten mile an hour winds. You know, but, you know, I remember what you said about being robust versus being fragile. I took this as a chance to be robust on a day, and I crushed it. And I was like, awesome. Love it, kid. You know? Yeah, like, no, it's, I mean, that's brilliant. And that's the thing. Yeah. Like, we think we think we make so much of a difference. But as you said, like, I mean, the reality is, like, if if you coach right and you create independence, like, they can figure it out on their own. Like, yeah. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, as you said, I coach, I coach, I coach people in in Germany and Ireland who I've never seen before in my life. <laughs> uh, like, I have never ever seen them ever before in my life, right? But right. 
you know, I mean, Irish kid's new, and he's doing a great job, so we'll see instead. The German kid, look, he was, I think, what, second at at the at his national champs in the steeplechase? Awesome. I've, I've never seen him, but he's running well. It's like, is that because I'm writing him a, a great, fantastic email plan every week? I mean, it's solid. It's good. But it also speaks to the 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 you know the standpoint that like if he can run if he or whoever else I have that runs fast off that like can do that without me being there coaching every time like what does that say about coaching right well and I always tell people like sometimes they'll be athletes and they'll want to do like in the gym after a session and they'll want to do some extra push ups so they want to do they want to do some planks like so and like. You know, and I'm, I'm always, and you know, I always the athlete look at me. He's okay. Like I'm gonna like chew them out because they're doing, they're not doing something I prescribed. Yeah. I go, I'm like, I am okay with extracurriculars as long as it's one, not illegal, or, or and then two, it doesn't get you hurt. Like yeah. as long as it's you know, legal or not legal or not illegal, and not against the law, and it doesn't get you hurt, and it, it makes you feel better about yourself or more. Sure, you can go ahead and do five minutes of planks. Like it's. It's not, it's, it's, it's extracurriculars. Like I, I'm like, yeah, I mean, extra credits, just extra, it's just extra. It's not like, you know, it's the make or break of your grade. You can't pass the class just on surviving on extra credit alone. I mean, it'll right. help Pat. And, but if it makes you feel 2%, 5% better because you did it, go ahead and do it. You know, exactly. just don't hurt and make sure it's not against the law. <laughs> like, you know, so exactly. I think it's like that. It's, it's this idea and I, you know, maybe it's a hangover from the scholastic system where you have the syllabi and all that matters is this is the learning is on the syllabi, but it's, it's, it's this mass like consumption and then, you know, regurgitation of facts, right. That we have to put onto this test that, you know, measures your, you know, competency of what you learn. And then you just got to drain all the water of the bathtub and forget it all. Because now you have a whole bunch of new water to fill up in the bathtub for this next, you know, cycle or this next, you know, chapter or section on the test. It's, you know, it's wrong. It's like, I always tell people, it's like, the only, the only relationship I plan to have forever or for as long as I live is the relationship with my wife. Like, that one's going on till the day I die. Like, there's one day I'm no longer going to be coaching you. And it could be a very, you know, day very soon or a couple, you know, years down the road. But one day I'm no longer going to be your coach. And that's okay. <laughs> like, it's fine. I yeah. hope that after I stop being your coach that we can still, you know, that we like each other. We can still be friends. I can go to your, you know, wedding or, you know, uh, meet your child or whatever. But it's like one day I will no longer do that. And that's fine. I don't need to be the person prescribing things for the rest of your life. And you might right. figure out you want to just do it yourself. You may figure out someone else is just a better fit for you or you drive better or you might have learned everything you could learn from me and there's no nothing else you can learn from me. You just can't put up with my own horseshit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's true. And like athletes grow and move on and all that stuff and coaches too. Like, and that's the thing. It's like you have to foster independence. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm almost more proud of like, you know, when I coached high school and saw the kids go on and succeed in college and stuff like that, like that made me even more proud than like me coaching them and doing stuff because it's like, Oh, kids are still doing it. Like they're doing it. They're doing it on their own. They're doing it with new coaches. That's awesome. 
Like mm-hmm. that's what that's what you want to see. But yeah, it's a uh, it's different. Mm. Okay, next one. Trackside therapy. Let's go. <laughs> this one's one of my favorites. Oh man, I'll I'll let you start this because yeah, this is your favorite. This is your favorite one. Hundred percent bullshit. Hundred percent bullshit. Here's my argument: If someone is just not in a state of mind body capacity to work out, that means they are hurt and they should not be working out. Don't do it. Like Saturday, great example. Had like two two athletes I work with. You know, been working with for a little while. They're great. They you know they they've I know them really well. We've been working for like several years together. They've improved a lot in the time I've been working with them. We're super consistent. All right, you know, they hadn't done a workout, got an extra day's rest because of Christmas. And I'm like, okay, we want to go, ready to go. We need for, you know, the workout at the track. They do their warm-up, their activation. You know, I, I watch them. like, yeah, they look off. Like, both of them for different reasons. They just both look yeah. off. And I just talked to them all both independently. They both had different sessions. They were just, you know, you know warming up together. And they, you know, 1500 meter runner, 5k runner, different sessions, uh, or different workouts planned. And like, you know, talk to the 5k runner, it's like, yeah, no, nope, you're not working out today, you just, you're off. Like, maybe go for an easy run. Like, I just did not, like, with the feedback you're giving me, your energy levels, how you looked when you were moving, with activation, how you're feeling, nope, 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 not working out today. So like, what? Ah, oh, ah, oh, I'm gonna get out of shape, ah, oh, I can't, like, no, like, <laughs> no. <laughs> 30 be minutes fine. of, 30 minutes of hard effort is not going to ruin all the years of consistent training you've amassed. You'll be all right. That 30 minutes, though, could ruin you and could ruin your season and could get you hurt. So let's not do it. And the other one, like, man, you just really still not recovered. You did a really hard, you know, acceleration development workout on Tuesday and you're still first one of the season. Like, you ran really fast. It was awesome. You're on the track for two hours, which for me, I totally don't have people total track time more than 75 minutes, no matter the session, like, you know, that includes recovery and the reps. And like, if you're on the track more than 70 minutes, it gets dicey after that, except when you're doing like acceleration development, because that stuff, you know, the recovery is three to four minutes between, you know, reps of five to like 15 seconds. So it's like, it's a little different, but that's more the exception rather than rule. And I just like looked at her and I said, man, I just don't like how you have all these, like, this is a little niggle, this is a little ache, that's a little pain. Like, overall, you could do it, but eh, no, let's not do it. You know, did I need a therapist on, or did I need to apply therapy as a coach? And say, oh, well, let me adjust this. Let me loosen, let me stretch that, and then we'll go. It's like, no, they were not in the right state to get the benefit we're trying to get out of the session, so we had to just walk away. And sometimes I think we, you know, again, it's sunken cost bias. And so there's a sunken cost that we all got, we drove to the track, we, you know, packed our workout shoes and our workout attire. We got, you know, we rested up, we were ready to go. We had this on the schedule. And so you have the sunken cost. You have to do this session because if you don't do this session, that's going to mess up everything else in the plan down the road because that one day is going to throw everything off. It's and it's like no, it's a, it's the same argument of doing a workout on Christmas. Like, yeah, it it may have been a workout day in the normal pattern, but moving it to the day after Christmas 
you'll be fine. You, you know what I mean? It's, it's, so you don't need that horse shit. You know, you just don't need it. But there's this, you know, trend that is super vital, important to keep the person healthy. And it's like, well, all it is, is it's a temporary, you know, fix. It's a short-term, you know, bandage on a probably more global problem. And if you have this big global problem, that means something else is bigger that you need to pay attention to. Or one, you didn't pay attention to the bigger thing when there's a small issue and now it's really up in your face. And again, inherent, in, finally, the other thing it does is create <laughs> inherent fragility in that athlete because you get this, you know, idea where it's like, I have to feel optimal all the time and I cannot do anything hard. I cannot be challenged. I cannot perform if I am not feeling optimal. And I only am going to, you, you create divas, period. Yeah. You create divas because they have to feel optimal all the time. It's like, no. You, you, that's the life of athletes. It's like, the, I don't wake up every day saying, like, I'm not going to go to work. Or I'm not going to get out of bed if I don't feel optimal. Yeah. <laughs> if, if that was the case, I would never get out of bed because I don't feel optimal until I have like two cups of coffee. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, uh, I would just be like, oh, not get out of bed today. No, no that's... I'd never get anything done. And, and that yeah. fragility, it, 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 the long term fragility it creates, is scary to me because you're going to get all these divas at these trap meets are saying like, yep. Oh, well that my right pinky is feeling a little irritated. <sighs> I just, <But>. I can't. <laughs> and it's like, you don't need the right pinky to run. Just run. Go. Get done. So this is, this is one of my biggest pet peeves is that massage and therapy creates fragility. Like it creates fragile athletes if used in the wrong in the wrong situation. You know, I've, I coach at the college setting too. So like you have trainers, you get spoiled with trainers who can do things and blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, XYZ, you coach at the post collegiate setting, not at the high, you know, the, the spoiled setting. If you get athletes who show up on the track and it's just them going out to Stanford and they have to figure stuff out. And, you know, I, I remember dealing with some of my college athletes where they were like, oh, like, I, I don't feel the best. Like, can I use, like, the Normatec? Can I use, you know, can I get a massage before this race? And, you know, before my warm-up, I need this massage. And it's like, it's like, chill out, guys. Like, you realize that, like, some of the best athletes in the world don't get this for for their, you know, before their races. And it's like you're becoming dependent on the state mm-hmm of feeling right and if you mm-hmm. don't if you're not in that zone then it tells you you're telling yourself that you're not ready to race fast right and it's mm-hmm. i i tell this story all the time but one of the post collegiate runners i had who um ran 72 for a half marathon after being you know 34 30 girl in college or sorry 33 30 girl in college um last year like, she's improved a ton, but I remember before her big half where she was trying to get trials qualifier, I was like, you know, you need any massage or anything like that? She's like, no, no. Like, I don't do massage. I'm like, okay, why? She's like, because I never want to be dependent on it. And I was like, oh, my God, that's brilliant, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it. it's it's like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Like, sure, it might help, and sure, it might be needed in certain circumstances, but... Like, you don't want to create that dependency because that dependency, like, creates it's almost like ingraining habits. Like, 
oh, in order to feel good, I have to have this aspect. Yeah. Like, no, mm-hmm. no, no, no. Like, you can be fine without it. And I think, like, once athletes, like, realize that, it's, like, mind-blowing. It's like, right. oh, I'm at another level. Like, I don't need all this extra crap that, like, people say I do. And I really think, like, it also comes to, I mean, whether it's trainers or therapists or coaches or whatever, it's a control issue. Right. Because, like, when you're sitting there as a coach and someone says, oh, I don't feel great, or if you if you have an athlete, go to your trainer and say, like, oh, I don't feel this, I need this, like, you just throw stuff at them to make it feel like, make yourself, it, it's like cognitive ease. Like, it makes yourself feel like you're doing something, right? And it makes yourself have this illusion of control. It's like, oh, I'm going to give this person, like, a massage right before his race. Then I'm going to have control of his impact. And that's going to mm-hmm. make me feel like I'm good and I'm doing something versus standing there and be like, dude, go through your warm up. Like, everything's done. Like, we can't do anything. You're going to get on that race, on that line, and you're going to race hard. And if you do it, you'll do well. But I can't, like, I can't impact that now. It's all, like, everything's done. And that, you have no control. Like, that's scary because there's uncertainty and we can't control it. Right. Well, it's, it's called activity bias, right? It's, yep. Yep. you know, and we're like, oh, if I do something, there will be some type of outcome. But, you know, very, very wise, you know, person once said to not, mistake activity with achievement because they're two separate things most of the time and yet we we do we we think oh well some activity leads to some type of achievement so all activity this therefore must lead to achievement no definitely not (laughs) definitely not and you know the other thing that is to nightly nicely wrap up this on bullshit of trackside therapy (laughs) is when you have coaches without any kind of training or degree or certification or anything adjusting spinal cords trackside i uh, do not do not you know a, a good i think it was Vern again a good coach should know therapy but not do therapy it's not our job i'm not a therapist last time i checked you know my wife's a pt and you know i i've shown her some pictures of coaches who don't have therapy degrees doing therapy no, 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 no. Those guys are complete hacks. <laughs> like, they need to stop ASAP because you have, you know, not just the, the high risk of injuring someone because you, you don't know what you're doing, period. Like, you just, I, I you don't know. And then, too, you, you probably get sued because you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> like, hey, this person gave me, cracked my back, and now I can't walk, and yeah, I'm going to sue you. Like, don't do it. Like, don't do it. Like, I mean, sure, in a pinch, you know, we've created things like foam rollers or rope stretch. But if, like, if you're really trying to create some kind of, like, deep impact on an athlete, you know, you should send them, you know, they need to go to professionals. If you're a professional coach, you know, they're come to you because you know how to coach, but you also need to then send them to professional therapists, physical therapists, massage therapists whatever, to help them out. I mean, yeah, coaches are supposed to, by nature, be jacks of all trades, and I get it. You might be in a situation coaching where it's like you don't have the resources to do this or do that, but don't take it upon yourself to step outside 
your circle of competency. Like we all have our own circles of competency. Stay where you're competent. It's when we step outside our circle of competency that we get in trouble and we get the people we're trying to help actually in trouble. Man. All right. So I'm going to wrap it up on that. On that <laughs> okay. Cause that's, that's brilliant. And I think if you look at, if you look at all bullshit, Bullshit comes when you come out, you get out of that circle of competency, right? Yes. Because, like, and it happens in two directions. Like, you get out of it, so you know enough that you're dangerous, right? But you don't mm-hmm. know enough to make great decisions. The other thing that happens on the flip side is, like, once you step outside of that circle of competency, like, you also don't know enough to know who's the guru giving you bullshit and who's not, right? Mm-hmm. So it's easier it's easier to be um to be manipulated and uh you know deluded by by someone else. So I think like uh if you look at all these topics that we call bullshit like the biggest thing is like know what you know and acknowledge what you don't know and mm-hmm. you know be okay with that. Like it's it's not that you have to be an expert on everything. It's not that you have to have everything figured out. Like, it's not that you, you, you should be, if you think you're this guru who has all the answers, then you're deluding yourself. Like, yeah. no one has it figured out. Yeah, and that's no bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Sam. Well, we will end it there. So thanks a lot for listening. Um, this will be our, well, maybe we'll release this around New Year. So this will be our, our end of 2015 salute. And here's to, uh, 2016 with, with much more, uh, much maybe, less bullshit. Yeah. Much, much less bullshit. L- much <laughs> less bullshit. Hopefully much yeah. more, cra- much more crazy podcasts from us. So yeah. Thanks oh, for that you can count on. We'll <laughs> give the people what they want. We'll keep it. So. <laughs> thanks for listening guys. Thank you.